Today we come to the end of Nehemiah, and chronologically the end of the Old Testament, and what a conclusion it is. If you weren't here last week at the end of chapter 12, the people of Israel recommitted to God's law. They had been incredibly sinful, and God had exiled them, allowed them to be defeated, and taken into captivity by the Babylonians, but then God in his mercy had allowed them to come back, and they have decided to recommit to God and his law. And one of their promises in their recommitment was to bring their offerings of support to the temple, to support the musicians and the singers and the workers there in the temple. That happened in chapter 12. Now the first three verses of chapter 13 happen on that same day. So if you want to go ahead and turn there now to Nehemiah chapter 13, we're going to conclude the book of Nehemiah this evening. Verses 1 through 3 again happen on the exact same day uh, as chapter 12 where they promised to bring their offerings to support the workers in the temple. Verses, verse 1, on that day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. It's once again important to hear, uh, here to see that this is not racism. Okay, this is not racism. The reason that no Ammonite or Moabite is admitted into the people of God is because they do not worship Israel's God. Okay, that's why they're not allowed in. Uh, they are idolaters, as verse 2 makes clear. Uh, now, plenty of non-Jews throughout the Bible convert to Judaism, worship Yahweh, and they are welcomed into the assembly. Okay? But these current Ammonites and Moabites ain't like that. They do not at all worship Yahweh. They do not worship Israel's God, uh, and so they are not welcome. Israel commits to keeping Jerusalem free of paganism. Okay, that's what's happening here in the first three verses. Okay, so here's where we're at in the story. God brings Israel back from exile. They've rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. And they've recommitted to obey God's law. And then their leader, Nehemiah, leaves for a period of time. We don't know how long he leaves for. The Bible does not tell us. Scholars think probably a few years. We don't really know. But he leaves for a period of time, probably at least a couple, two or three years. But when he rides back into Jerusalem, he is absolutely shocked. At what he finds. He's flabbergasted at what he finds. Verses 4 through 6 explain what happened in Jerusalem while Nehemiah was gone. Let's check it out. Verses 4 through 6. Verse 4. Before this, Elisha, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. And he had provided him with a large room, formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil 
prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. So who is Tobiah? If you've been with us throughout this series, you will recognize the name. Tobiah is an Ammonite who has been mentioned throughout this book. He hates God, and he hates Nehemiah, and he hates the people of Israel. So, Israel makes a covenant to not allow Ammonites into the assembly. And what do they turn right around and do? Allow an Ammonite into the assembly. Oh, but it goes farther than that. Verse 5 is unbelievable. Uh, this is unbelievable. Elishab, the dead gum priest over the temple, lets Tobiah come live inside the temple. You see that? Elishab took all the grain offerings and the incense and the temple articles in that room and threw them out so that Tobiah, the Ammonite, could move in. Uh, this is unbelievable. And so when Nehemiah returns, how do you think he reacts? Probably as you would expect. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. Sometimes later I, I asked permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. So uh, Nehemiah ain't happy about this, and he does not hesitate. He throws Tobiah and all of his junk out, right? He throws Tobiah and all of his junk out of the temple. Nehemiah understands well that the temple represents the glory of God. And Tobiah and Israel and Elisha have absolutely made a mockery of it. This is a holy and righteous anger on the part of Nehemiah. And not only does he kick Tobiah out, verse 9 says that he purified the room he stayed in. Did you catch that? So he throws Tobiah and his stuff out, and then he takes a can of Lysol to his room. Okay? And not only that, if you notice, all the rooms around it. <laughs> we got to get this Tobiah stench out of here. So he takes Lysol to Tobiah's room and to all the rooms around Tobiah's room. Then Nehemiah finds out about something else that happened in Jerusalem while he was gone. Verse 10, Nehemiah writes, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So Israel did not keep their promise to support the workers in the temple. Just, just one chapter earlier, just a few verses. They promised they would support the workers in the temple. 
and they did not. They did not keep their promise. And so there is no worship in God's temple. No worship. As the musicians and singers had gone back to working the fields. How do you think Nehemiah reacted to that? I'm sure he was thrilled. So let's read Nehemiah's reaction in verses 11 through 14. 11 through 14. Nehemiah says, So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Now, Nehemiah must have been a pretty impressive fellow. I mean, he might have been a big old boy. I don't know. But this is pretty wild when you think about it. So scholars think Nehemiah at this time was probably either 60 or 70 years old, somewhere around that. And when this dude says jump, Israel immediately says, how high, sir? Nehemiah was an impressive fellow. He must have been. Because there's not a whole lot of argument going on here. <laughs> and, and really the entire book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, jump. And Israel says, how high, sir? Oh, but our story doesn't end there. Believe it or not, Nehemiah discovers another problem. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. 15 and 16. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kind of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. And if you were here last week and the week before, you remember, do you remember how Israel made a covenant? They made a covenant with God. They literally signed their names. You can flip back and look at all the names that are there. You know, we have them in, in chapter 10 and 11 and 12. We have all these names. They literally signed their names to this covenant, this covenant agreement and in that covenant, they promised that they would honor the Sabbath. They would honor God's law about the Sabbath. They, they put pen to paper. They signed their names to it. And the ink isn't even dry on that covenant before they go right back to dishonoring the Sabbath. The ink's not even dry yet. They go right back to breaking God's law about the Sabbath. Nehemiah responds in verses 17 through 22. Verse 17. 
I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Oh, but we're not done, folks. We're not done yet. There seems to be no end to Israel's rebellion against God and his law. There's just no end. Let's look at verses 23 through 24 where Nehemiah discovers something else. Verse 23, Nehemiah says, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Remember what we said at the beginning. Israel made a covenant to not let their daughters marry pagan foreigners. And what did they do? They let their daughters marry pagan foreigners. They let them marry pagan foreigners. And how does Nehemiah respond? He absolutely loses it. This is like the last straw for, for Nehemiah. He absolutely loses it on the people of Israel. He doles out pure wrath on them. Let's read in verses 25 through 31, Nehemiah's response. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jodiah, son of Elisha, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. 
and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision and contributions of wood as, the, as designated times and for the first few fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. And this is how Nehemiah and the Old Testament ends. It's how it ends. The Hebrew Bible ends in despair. With Nehemiah exasperated with Israel yet again in rebellion against their God and his commands. Not exactly a fairy tale ending, huh? I don't think Disney's going to make a movie out of this one. It's not exactly a fairy tale ending. So, what do we do with this? You know, we spent the last several months working our way through Nehemiah. And now we come to this sad end. What do we do? What do we do with it? Well, what do we do with the story of the Old Testament that comes to the same sad end? The book of Nehemiah forces us to look closer at the story of the people of Israel. A people who were specifically called out by God. Who were promised blessing, land, and a relationship with God through Abraham's seed. Who grew into a great nation in the land of promise. Who repeatedly rebelled against God, despite the forceful call of God's prophets to obey. Who ultimately suffered the punishment of defeat and exile who are now a small remnant of people returned to their land under Persian rule, who are rebuilding Jerusalem with its temple and sacrificial system as prescribed by God, and who have once again blown it and rebelled against their God. Not only is this beautiful and sad history found in the surrounding books of the Old Testament. It bleeds through every word of the book of Nehemiah. The long, harsh history of this people hangs heavy over the book from beginning to end. And at its conclusion, we see beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's no argument left that God's special chosen people will not and cannot follow him or his commands. They cannot and they will not follow God or his commands. If that is the case, then tell me. What chance do you and I have to follow God and his laws? If God's special chosen people cannot follow God or his laws, 
what hope do you have? What hope do I have to follow him or his law? What chance do we have? I'll tell you what chance we have. None. We have zero chance to follow God or his law. Or whatever's less than zero. We're in like the negative number. We cannot follow God or his law. So, what do we do? What do we do? Is there any hope at all for us? You betcha there is. You betcha. Because 400 years after Nehemiah rode into Jerusalem to dole out judgment and wrath, there would come another who would ride into Jerusalem. But not to dole out judgment and wrath, but instead to bear judgment and wrath. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. No, he did not come to dole out judgment. He came to bear judgment. You see, the curse Nehemiah called down on Israel in verse 25 would indeed come. God would answer that prayer. And the curse that Nehemiah called down would come. But it would not come down on the people of Israel. It would come down on the true Israel. God's only son. He would bear that curse. Israel could not keep God's law and neither could you. And neither could I. We rightfully deserved punishment from God for our rebellion and our sin. And so, on Palm Sunday, our king rode into Jerusalem on the lowly back of a donkey to the cheering of the crowds and their waving of palm branches. Not so he could take his seat on the throne, but so he could take our place on the cross. You see, the very same people who waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, would less than one week later shout, crucify him, crucify him. And so, our king was condemned to death. And then he was beaten, stripped naked, and whipped until there was no flesh left on his back. Then he was led down the long, narrow road, carrying his own cross to the hill called Golgotha, where he would drink the bitter cup of God's wrath, not for his sins, 
for he had none, but for your sin and for my sin. Then he would offer up his spirit to his father, breathe his last breath, and be buried in a borrowed tomb. But while the conclusion of the Old Testament story doesn't end like a fairy tale, the end of this story does. On the third day, our crucified king would rise victoriously from the dead, holding the keys of death, hell, and the grave in his nail-scarred hands. And though our king would ascend to the highest throne in heaven where he now sits, he promised to return again, riding not on a donkey, but on a white horse to once and for all vanquish evil and establish a new heaven and new earth under his rule. There his blood-bought children will live with him in a spectacular, holy resurrection existence where we will know and enjoy our king forever and ever. Let us then use the story of Nehemiah and the sad story of the Old Testament to drive us to Jesus. Let it drive us to Jesus. Let it drive us to his nail-scarred feet. Let it drive us to his grace and to his mercy and to his open arms where we will find rest for our souls and hope for a glorious future when our King returns. The hymn writer spoke so eloquently of this future when he said, Then I saw a new heaven and earth, for the first had passed away. And the holy city came down from God like a bride on her wedding day. And I know how he loves his own, for I heard his great voice tell. They would be his people, and he their God, and among them he came to dwell. He will wipe away every tear, and death shall die at last. There'll be no more crying or grief or pain. They belong to the world that's past. And the one on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. He is A and Z. He is first and last, and his words are exact and true. As they measured its length and breadth, I could see no temple there. For its only temple is God the Lord and the Lamb in that city fair. And it needs neither sun nor moon in a place which knows no night. For the city's lamp is the Lamb himself and the glory of God its light. And I saw by the sacred throne flowing water, crystal clear, and the tree of life with its healing leaves and its fruit growing all the year. So the worshipers of the Lamb bear his name and see his face. And they reign and serve and forever live to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray together. Father, your word is clear. 
that none of us, not Israel, not anyone, can follow you and your commands. But thank you that out of your infinite love, you have provided a way for us to know you. And it was through the crushing of your son What can we even say then, Father, that it took the death of your precious lamb to save us? Thank you just doesn't quite seem to cut it. And so instead, Father, we will just worship the lamb. We will just honor the lamb for his suffering, for his blood, for his death. thank you, Father, that that is not the end of the story, that your son arose and is alive and well-seated on your throne, waiting imminently to come back and bring heaven with him. What a hope we have, Father, in your son. He has done everything we could never do. And so by faith, we just honor him cherish him and worship him and glorify him and wait anxiously for his return and father we pray for your spirit to help us help our anxious hearts to rest and to be at peace in the finished work of your son Please help us stop trying to add to his work, but just to simply rest. Rest in his work and his love and his grace, his forgiveness and his mercy. What a God we have. What a Savior we have. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for Jesus.